From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. The COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic has affected us all and, for the time being, will change the sound of our program just a bit. On today's program, we'll bring you some of the highlights from the Mayo Clinic Q&A podcasts and the Mayo News Network coverage of the pandemic. You're invited to follow along during the week by downloading Mayo Clinic Q&A from your favorite podcast provider. You'll also find more COVID-19 coverage at newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Thanks for joining us and let's get started. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome, everyone. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Well, we are in the midst of a pandemic, a worldwide epidemic caused by a virus resulting in a disease called called COVID-19. Now, that's an acronym that stands for Coronavirus Disease of 2019, the year it was first detected. Travel has nearly come to a standstill, and should you be traveling at all, how do you reduce your risk? That's what we want to know. Here to answer those questions and more is Mayo Clinic Infectious Disease Specialist, Dr. Avinash Verk. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Glad to be here. Dr. Verk, we're so glad you are here. So what about for the general public? Should anybody be traveling? Um, Well, uh, during this massive global crisis, it would be best if people not travel uh, because they could either pick up stuff or they could transmit to others. So we prefer people not traveling right now. Now, if you do have to travel, what mode would you suggest? Is it safer to fly or to drive or take the train? Well, that kind of depends on where you have to go. And, uh, you know, if you look at it from the domestic standpoint, if you can drive, it might drive yourself in your own car. That would probably be the safest because you can control your food exposures, your uh, pit stops on the way, and control your uh, hygiene and exposures. But if you have to travel overseas, that's really, uh, that's difficult because you would then have to fly by air and you can't really travel by ship anymore because I think there aren't any ships traveling anymore. Mm -hmm. It seems to me like the airports are the Petri dishes, or are the airplanes the Petri dishes, or are they both the Petri dishes? It's the airport bathrooms that are the Petri dishes. (laughs) Well, actually, you're absolutely right. The airports are the bigger Petri dishes, uh, and probably the bathrooms with them, Uh, less so the plane. And it's really important to understand that on the airports, you have to handle the doorknobs, the railings. You you may not be able to get away from other people. Uh, so it's difficult to control that. Uh, on the other hand, in the plane, it's really interesting to know that the air circulation in the plane does not go from the front to the back. It actually goes horizontal in sections. And so there's only a section of uh, air circulating uh, in a zone of about six six rows across. And it's actually more HEPA filtered than our ORs. So if somebody's sitting at the back and you're sitting, you know, row 16 and somebody's sitting in row 13, 
33, you're not going to get what they have, except if obviously somebody's sitting in your section, then obviously you can't really award that too much. When you travel, when you get home again, what should you do? I've thought about that a lot. In fact, I have a friend of mine whose family member is driving from New York City to their home. And I advise them that the family member who's coming from another area should isolate themselves in the home and be really good about that 14-day isolation, especially if the family member that they're coming to is older, has immune compromise, uh, it would be the most prudent thing to do. Now, I don't think anybody is left out there on a cruise ship, correct? I would agree with that. But certainly, if you came home uh, from a cruise, you ought to self-quarantine. Yes, I would agree with that. Because right now, we don't know, and there are some people who may not have symptoms yet, uh, but could be carrying the virus, so it would be important for them to isolate themselves, yes. All right, what about spring break plans? If people haven't already canceled those, they should? They should. What What about the summer? I was going to say summer vacation (laughs) travel plans, because I've given up on spring break, and now I'm thinking summer. Um, so I think uh, that really brings up the question of the projections of where this epidemic is going and when is it going to peak and when is it going to peter out. Um, unfortunately, the way it seems to be going right now, we are probably looking at the peak in the summer or potentially even later than that. That long. Yes. And so I, I think that's that's the one thing that is the biggest unknown. And in the United States right now, as you can see, the cases are increasing um, exponentially, logarithmically on a daily basis. We are nowhere close to a plateau or a turning down. And so I think people really have to take this as seriously as possible because this is not... This is not the flu. This is worse than the flu, and it has much more implications. This is an exciting time for me to be able to talk with all of you infectious disease specialists. And so it has to be, uh, especially for you, um, something that you feel like you've trained your whole life for, correct? Yes. <laughs> and and But at the same time, it's also a little bit saddening because... It is a virus that we don't have any known drugs for. We don't have a vaccine for. It is a novel virus that, you know, we have to, it's impacting the whole world. And uh, so it's really, um, it is scary. Since we first learned about it in in China back at the end of 2019, what do you think, um, just looking ahead five years, what do you think maybe we have already learned about this time? We have learned a lot, more than we really were uh, willing to acknowledge. And one of the things is that uh, these pandemics have been predicted for a long time. And if you look back in history, we've had pandemics for, you know, millennia, and that these are not going to just go away. So we do have to pay attention to the fact that there is probably going to be another pandemic of some other virus that we have to keep in mind. Do we have to do something different with the animal markets? How do we how do we actually prevent one from happening and how do we deal with one? And specifically, just going back to the COVID-19 or the SARS-CoV-2 issue is that um, 
at this point, so if you look back on SARS-CoV-1, which happened in 2003, it was a one-time thing. It happened, a blip. Yes, we had lots of people getting infected, but then it has not come back. When you look at MERS-CoV, which is another coronavirus, but it emerged from the Middle East and it's associated with camel exposure, that has now become a seasonal disease. So we still see it on an annual basis. Yes, not to the high numbers we saw initially, but it is there happening seasonally. We don't know what's going to happen with SARS-CoV-2. Is that going to become an annual thing or is it going to eventually peter out? The thing that I'm afraid of, and I'm not an epidemiologist, I'm, I'm an ordinary infectious disease doctor, what I can't see is how it is actually going to completely be arrested in the world because of the number of people that are involved in the world. At this point, we, we don't know how many subclinical disease people are there. We only know the ones that we've tested. We only know the ones that are, you know, have significant symptoms. And we don't really know what's happening, what's going to happen in Asia, uh, India, Africa. We, we don't know really where this is going yet. You know, Dr. Virk, we really appreciate your expertise, and but we hope you're wrong about how long this is going to last. I hope so, too. <laughs> so if you do need to travel but during... Go ahead. We may have a vaccine. I hope that we will... So I think the salvation of this whole thing, if if it is longer than a few months, you know, if it's a year or two or even more, the salvation is really going to be in a vaccine and drug trials and drugs that might potentially help treat it. Our thanks to Mayo Clinic Infectious Disease Specialist, Dr. Abhinash Burke. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Tom and Tracy. You can access our Q&A series wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Mayo Clinic Radio continues after a short break. Welcome, everyone. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Well, these are, to say the least, trying times. We're experiencing a serious pandemic caused by a coronavirus. Now, fear and anxiety about a disease, in this case, a, a new virus that we've never seen before, can be overwhelming and cause strong emotions in adults and children. Yeah, in all of us, for sure. Coping with stress will make you, the people you care about, and your community stronger. Join us on, joining us on the phone to tell us how to do that is mental health care professional, Ms. Caroline Poland. Caroline, nice to have you on the program. So tell us about your practice right now. I mean, is there a lot of fear and anxiety related to the coronavirus? Oh, absolutely. And I think that's one of the things that I've been normalizing this week with my clients is that fear and anxiety, the the feelings of uncertainty and grief that we're having right now are very normal. It just means that you're human. So I say, welcome to your humanness uh, quite a bit. So I think those <laughs> well, that's things good are, are very normal. Yes. <laughs> are you switching to telehealth appointments? Yes, we are, uh, which I feel very thankful for. I know a number of mental health practices are switching to telehealth, uh, which not only you know is healthier for us as a practitioner, but it really allows us into you know the homes of uh, clients who might not otherwise feel like they would want to be out in public. So we can engage in. Uh, practicing social distancing while also providing those appointments. Have you got any tips for how people can deal with social isolation and the boredom of being home and living in one home with the, your family? Uh, it's it's stressful. It is very stressful. I think we're living in 
uh, unprecedented times, right? Even though you have uh, maybe lived with your family for a number of years, there's no uh, framework or map for living in this kind of way on top of each other for an unknown amount of time. Um, And so one of the things that I really have been encouraging people is uh, to make sure that you're implementing a quiet time every day. We all need a break from one another. It's not healthy to just exist in the same little space at all times. We still need to be our own individual people. And so scheduling in a quiet time where everyone can be, you know, in a separate room of the house, it doesn't have to be a nap time, but reading or, you know, maybe connecting to another friend outside the family, just doing something that makes you you still, I think is really important. The other thing that I really have been uh, trying to frame is that this social distance doesn't need to be social isolation. We just need to be very creative about how we navigate that. And so uh, we can still do coffee dates with our friends. That just needs to be on FaceTime. Uh, You can join virtual gyms, virtual book clubs, uh, things like that that just continue to remind you that you're not an island, that you are part of a community and keep you connected, even though it looks very different than the connection that we had three weeks ago. One of the things that has surprised me in my household, I have two teenagers, is the pushback from the kids of wanting to set up a new daily routine. When they were little kids, it was golden, but right now they do not see the benefit of that. It's a little easier when kids are, are younger. We can just tell them to do something. <laughs> it's harder once they, uh, they get their own opinions, right? Right. You know, as humans, we really are built to thrive under structure. And even when we push against that, those rhythms and our bodies being able to predict what's coming next is incredibly healthy for us. It really helps to mitigate some of that anxiety and depression and trauma-based responses and body reactions that we have. So it's really important in some ways not to necessarily frame it as a schedule, but as predictability. When we experience uncertainty, our body can experience that as a threat and we begin to go into fight or flight with that. The schedule allows the predictability that our body needs in order to stay regulated and to make those wise and healthy decisions for ourselves. One of the things I would encourage for a parent whose kid is pushing against that is to just be very curious. Uh, I talk a lot about taking on the position of a curious noticer or a curious observer, whether that's being curious about our own reactions or uh, the reactions or thoughts or patterns of another person. So being very curious about you know, what's making you push against that right now? What would you think is a better way to handle it? Asking some of those questions uh, might be helpful in exploring kind of what's going on in, in their world and the connections that they're making. And how about some tips for talking to, to young children? I mean, how do, you, how do you explain social distancing to your young kids? We don't get abstract thought until we're 12. And so navigating some of these more complex abstract thoughts, those things don't really matter to a child. And so that makes us take a very different posture with them. Again, taking on that posture of a curious observer with them, we want to ask them, what have you heard and what have you seen? Because that will give us an idea of what they've overheard us talking about and the connections that they're making, making sure that you get down on their level so that you're eye to eye with them. Uh, That allows our nervous system to co-regulate. We want to remind kids that we are here for them. That's what really matters to a kid. That's what allows them to have that felt experience and felt sense of safety. We want to give them permission to come to us and ask any question that they might have. 
there are some reliable resources that people ought to know about. Coronavirus.gov is one. CDC.gov is one. And your favorite podcast provider, type in Mayo Clinic Q&A. All of those are good sources. And the couple that you mentioned, Mental Health America and Fred Rogers Center, especially for young kids. (laughs) Absolutely. You know, the other resource that I have been talking about and a lot of the Instagram lives that I've been doing is just the National Suicide Lifeline. Isolation is a fuel for anxiety and depression. And so that can increase some of the suicidal thinking that we have, especially when many of the things maybe from our safety plans are taken away. And so I want to share that that suicide lifeline number, and that is 1-800-273-8255. 1-800-273-8255. I just have one more question. Caroline, because we want to be as proactive as we can, can you give us just a couple more tips that we can try to incorporate into our day? Sure. I've created just four basic things that you can do today to help to build that resiliency. The first one, and some of these we've already talked about, is maintaining connections with others. We really need to switch our mentality from me to we. We are part of a community. And so the decisions that I'm making impact my community. So how am I staying connected? How am I staying in relationship with other people? And then how is my understanding that I'm not an island impacting the decisions and the behaviors that I have? The second being watching our thought patterns. Research shows that the words that we choose to use really do impact our mental health. So if we're using words like always or never, if we're catastrophizing, I can't survive this, this is unbearable, our emotions and our body sensations are going to follow. We're more likely to uh, spike into anxiety or start to experience feelings of depression. So really being able to watch our thought patterns uh, using something like a thought record, you can just go on, on Google and search for that. It's a really helpful tool right now. The third being just watching how we move and how we breathe. Uh, and that sounds really simple, but we know that how we move and how we breathe is very critical for uh, staying healthy, for helping to regulate our emotions and keeping our nervous system away from flipping into that flight or or fight sympathetic nervous system. And so going on a walk, getting outside, looking at the sunshine, taking a moment to do deep breathing or yoga, uh, we know all of those things are incredibly healthy. And then the fourth, just being the idea of being a very curious observer of yourself. So observing your reactions, your thoughts, your feelings, your actions, and your body sensations to the different things that you're engaging in will allow you to set healthy boundaries boundaries and limits for yourself. Wow, those are all great suggestions. And I like the one about quiet time every day is a good idea. And social distance doesn't need to be social isolation. Our thanks to mental health professional, Ms. Caroline Poland. Yes, thank you. Mayo Clinic Radio continues after a short break. Welcome, everyone. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. A study published in Mayo Clinic Proceedings details information about potential cardiac side effects when using off-label drugs to treat COVID-19. With us in studio is Mayo Clinic cardiologist and senior author of the study, Dr. Michael Ackerman. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Ackerman. Thanks a lot. Good to be with you. Dr. Ackerman, good to see you. So uh, tell our audience, first of all, what we mean when we say off-label drugs. Yeah, you know, off-label is the term that's being used for medications that are FDA-approved, 
you and I can prescribe them, but they've been FDA approved for different and other specific diseases. So as a cardiologist, I use medications all the time that are FDA approved, but they're not labeled or indicated for the particular disease that I'm treating right now. And it's because I think it'll work for that disease. And so I'm using it and that's what's off label. And so the medications we're hearing about now, like hydroxychloroquine is off label for COVID-19. It's on label. For, so people who have rheumatoid arthritis or lupus do take this drug, right? Absolutely. And, and that those would be who, on label. And that's on label. Or okay. those who are preventing malaria or got malaria and, and are treating their malarial disease, that's the FDA-approved indication for a drug like hydroxychloroquine. But for any other purpose, uh, COVID-19 or any other condition, that would be viewed as off-label. So the reason why this is coming to the front is because there is some thought that possibly it would work for COVID patients? Yes, there's, uh, now I'm just a genetic cardiologist. Um, <laughs> the infectious disease specialists and scientists are telling us that in vitro, it looks like drugs like hydroxychloroquine might interfere with the ability of the coronavirus to be able to penetrate the cells, the body, the lung cells, or if we got infected and we're having respiratory distress, it may counter or temper or neutralize the inflammatory respiratory distress reaction. And so that's in vitro. In and vitro meaning in the test tube or in, in the, the test petri tube dish. and in the dish. Yeah, exactly. And then there's the small study out of uh, France that suggested anecdotal benefits. So it's not randomized. It's not controlled. It's not large. But there was a good enough signal that physicians throughout the world are starting to look at a drug like hydroxychloroquine and saying, I think the benefit might outweigh the risk. And while we're waiting for the benefit to be clearly demonstrated by the studies that you and I like to see done for it to have enough evidence for it to become on label and indicated drugs like these are starting to be used all over the world, particularly in New York, in our country right now. Now, you use the word uh, anecdotal, and it might, and it may, and we're curious about, I mean, yeah. so that's the problem here, That's right? the problem. Because um, people are afraid, and tell us what's happening. Well, I think uh, what's happening varies all over the place. I mean, I think the signal is quite encouraging. I mean, the the, you talk to infectious disease experts, there's reason for why there's enthusiasm about a drug like hydroxychloroquine with or without the addition of azithromycin or Zithromax, the ZPAC. Right. So there's encouragement and there's hope. There's actually real hope from what I'm told. Again, I just listened to the infectious disease specialist. Uh, but that hope... Yeah, tell us what the concern is from your standpoint. Yeah, the hope is the hope of therapeutic efficacy, which we all hope we'll see has to be balanced with these are powerful, powerful medications. And like any powerful medication, they don't come without their unwanted side effect baggage. And that unwanted side effect, it's one thing if the side effect is a little headache, a little dizziness, a little diarrhea. It's another thing if that unwanted side effect is drug-induced sudden cardiac death to where the treatment itself 
becomes the tragic ending for the patient because it caused sudden cardiac death. And that's the, that's the concern that needs to be balanced with the hope for therapeutic efficacy, but what could be the dark side of these medications and can we counter the dark side and can we neutralize that threat? And the good news is we absolutely can. Have you seen this happen where someone died from taking, was it an overdose of hydroxychloroquine or the usual dose? No, usual dose. It can be usual dose, so right dose, but in the wrong host can be a nasty combination. And I think just as recently as a couple days ago, a couple in Arizona died from chloroquine. So they took chloroquine as a supplement that they got from, I don't know where, some aquarium uh, store. It was chloroquine phosphate, I think right. it was. And yeah, it was chloroquine, which tank. is yeah. sort of the first generation anti-malarial drug and died from what looks to be chloroquine-induced sudden cardiac death. These are powerful medicines, and we need to identify the small group of us who might be QT at risk of this tragic, unwanted side effect, and then we can neutralize that threat. Now, so tell us what you mean by QT at risk, and, yeah. and how do you determine that? Yeah, so, so the mechanism behind these drugs' unwanted side effect is that they have a tendency to prolong the heart's QT interval. So the heart's QT interval is a surface measurement that we get from a 12-lead electrocardiogram, an ECG, that tells us what the patient's QTC value is, and that value reflects the health of the heart's electrical recharging system. And just like Goldilocks and the Three Bears, too hot, too cold, just right, there's a just right range for that QTC value. If it's too hot and gets too long, that person is vulnerable to this unwanted side effect. So we need to have our patients, our doctors, our healthcare team providers know the QTC, know your patient's QTC so that we know whether they're at incredibly low risk, green light, good to go, or whether there needs to be the caution light or there needs to be the red light stop, this QTC value in this particular host suggests that this risk is a very, very real risk. And then we need to figure out what's our counterattack. So in, in patients like that, you probably would, you would try to avoid hydroxychloroquine as a drug to treat it. Depends, right? So if, let's say, that COVID-19 patient is my age, young, or younger, and the disease is mild, and my QTC is at red alert status, then I probably will skip that therapy because the disease is mild and the risk is outweighing the potential benefit. On the other hand, let's say my COVID-19 is rearing itself badly in me, and now I need the therapeutic benefit if it's there because there's not a lot of other options. I might accept my QTC danger. I might make sure that the doctor and the healthcare team has removed any other QTC aggravating factors, make sure my potassium levels are good, my magnesium levels are good, but it may be worth it, and that's the risk-benefit calculus that the healthcare team will decide as to does the potential benefit outweigh this potential risk of the drug. So it really will be a patient-by-patient... I mean, it's precision medicine. Mm -hmm. It's deciding what is the best therapy for that patient at that time and, and make sure we're respecting the efficacy if we detect it. And, but giving full respect, not fear, 
but full respect to this unwanted side effect that we can prevent the tragedy of hydroxychloroquine-induced sudden cardiac death. But this is a prescription medication, and so people can't just go to their pharmacy and ask for it over the counter, but what they can do is find it in other ways, whether it is from their aquarium or from a relative who maybe would have this prescription. That's why it's important to monitor that. It's really important. Don't take your grandmother's rheumatoid arthritis Plaquenil hydroxychloroquine without guidance from the healthcare team. Before you're placed on these medications, know your QTC. Find out, are you in the QTC danger zone or are you green light good to go? So 90% of all of us, when we get our QTC checked, will be like at the clear in the airport. You are cleared and the risk is going to be almost zero, 90%. So everybody needs a 12-lead EKG before they take hydroxychloroquine. I think that's the idea. Or let's say they're already in the hospital and they're on telemetry. And you and I can look at the rhythm strip and immediately see by just by eye that if the so-called QT interval is less than half of the RR interval, the heart rate, then we already know that person would be in a QTC green light go status. And then there's even newer ways. So just last Friday, the FDA granted emergency approval for a smartphone-enabled ECG device, a mobile device to be used for QTC monitoring for COVID-19 pharmacotherapy. So that could be really helpful because now you don't need an ECG technician to go into a COVID-positive patient's room before the drug, two hours after the drug, two days later. So we don't have to have them have their exposure risk. We don't have to have them, the ECG technician, using the protective personal equipment. And we might be able to have the QTC being monitored almost like a vital sign. So it could join blood pressure and what's your saturation as a real-time vital sign as to is your QTC still in green light safe status? Has it moved to caution? Let's check things out. Has it moved to red light stop? And that's the algorithm that we've put forward to make it really simple for the healthcare teams throughout the world to get an assessment. Is my patient QT safe for this drug? respecting that it could do a QT reaction, how should we monitor for it? What steps should we take if it's there, the QT signal, and we're now in want, want red light status, <laughs> to counter that? Let's say you and I decide, or the infectious disease docs decide, yes, they really should be on this drug. We're kind of running out of time. We think it will ben be beneficial, or the data is coming out proving its benefit. How, how do we counter it? How would you best describe the situation right now as people search for medications or combinations of medications that will help uh, patients with COVID-19? Yeah, I think like all of us, no matter where we are in our feelings and sense about coronavirus, it ranges from, I would say, still ignorance and sort of an oblivious nature, what's the big deal, to beyond paranoid fear that's really out of control and i think knowledge allows order to be restored proof allows a calm to occur right so i think as we get more knowledgeable we know we need to be physically distanced from each other that's 
incredibly important. I don't know how many times I've washed my hands today. A lot. <laughs> my temperature this morning was 96.9. So I I got the green light go in those parameters. But I think the healthcare teams are also like the community at large. It's wild west out there. We have uh, healthcare teams who are sort of saying, I'm going to use these drugs and I'm not going to even bother checking the patient's QTC. We'll just view that consequence, drug-induced sudden cardiac death, as friendly fire in this war. We have others who will say, let's send the ECG tech in there before, two hours after, the next day, the next day, the next day, exposing them and using up mass and having sort of QTC paranoia itself. And I think we, we, we can provide the urgent guidance. That's what we've done here now at Mayo Clinic is that we, we have to step in. If this drug is going to work and if it's going to be used more, it's being used a lot already, we need to make sure that it's safely used and that we decrease the chances of drug-induced tragedy where the treatment cause the sudden cardiac death to the greatest extent possible. And we can. We absolutely can. Used wisely, this drug can be used very well. All right. So the drugs that you're concerned about are chloroquine, hydroxychloroquine, and isn't there a drug to treat HIV that also can have the same side effect, that is arrhythmia and sudden cardiac death? Absolutely. All three of those, plus azithromycin. So some people are using hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin in combination. And both of those drugs by themselves independently interfere with the heart's electrical recharging system. Both drugs can cause the QT to prolong. And so that could be a double whammy. So if you got the QTC alert and you're placed in a red light status, be very, very careful. You and I probably are going to say, let's just do hydroxychloroquine. Let's not do both of these up front because both of these might start to become the perfect storm and and cause a bad consequence for our patient. So bottom line, there are some potential harmful side effects when we're using off-label drugs to treat the COVID-19 uh, outbreak. All of those drugs carry the risk of cardiac arrhythmia and even sudden cardiac death. Yes. But Most of us can take these drugs safely. Most. 90% of us will be QT cleared. But it's it's the 5 to to 10% that we have to be as concerned about saving their lives and not view if this just happens, oh, once in a while, that we do drug-induced sudden death as friendly fire. Not acceptable. We can try to save everybody's life from COVID-19, whether by the disease itself or by our well-intended treatments of COVID-19. But it's important to figure out who those people are at high risk. Absolutely. And we can figure that out. All right. Our thanks to Mayo Clinic cardiologist, genetic cardiologist, Dr. Michael Ackerman. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. Download the Mayo Clinic Q&A podcast today for the latest complete versions of interviews you hear on Mayo Clinic Radio. Find Mayo Clinic Q&A podcasts on your favorite podcast providers. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Our coverage of the COVID-19 pandemic continues now with the word from Dr. Joseph Servan, a Mayo Clinic neurologist. 
Dr. Servin has some important thoughts for patients with neurologic conditions like epilepsy, seizures, and migraine headaches. I think the biggest thing with uh, with regards to epilepsy or any chronic neurologic condition that requires medications uh, to be managed is, number one, have your medications on you. This may be the time to do the three-month uh prescription refill plan uh, so that you have plenty of medication regardless and you don't have to call anyone for any urgent uh, refills of those prescriptions. The issue about migraines is that you also have to be really mindful about getting sleep, avoiding uh, certain foods, knowing your triggers, knowing yourself. And that is something that you just have to be very careful with in terms of just navigating that so that you don't run into any funny situations uh, during this time. Dr. Servan also points out the anxiety being caused by the COVID-19 pandemic may increase the chance for seizure or headache, so it's vital that you find ways to eliminate stress. He offers these suggestions. So I think the easiest ways to consider de-stress are, are the following. The first thing is... Although we all need to be kept apprised of what's going on in the world, you don't need to watch second-to-second, minute-to-minute news coverage of the different issues of how the virus is impacting us. Give yourself some breaks. Uh, maybe check in once in the morning and once before you go to bed so you know what the big headlines are to make sure there's nothing else that's changing. But otherwise, give yourself a break from some of the news of the day so that that doesn't start an echo chamber where it's just increasing the sense of stress. The second thing is remember to think of yourself. Uh, make sure you eat. Make sure you stay hydrated. Uh, all those good things that help to prevent uh, infections uh, to begin with, the things that you do on a normal day. So take care of yourself that way. The third thing is exercise. Now, exercise under this whole world of, of physical and uh, social distancing may sound complicated, but it is super doable. How about a walk outside? Uh, keep your distance and get some of that sunshine and just bright sky because that can sometimes just give you a sense of, of relief. And I think that is a, a huge element. Focus on the positive. Uh, believe it or not, despite all of the headlines and all the scariness, there are a lot of positives. China is reporting almost no cases coming out of that country, and that was the epicenter. That is a good sign that this can be weathered uh, over many months, but it can be weathered, and that is something optimistic to look forward to. And the fifth one, I'd say, give a moment to reflect. Uh, meditation, take a deep breath. If you're spiritual, pray. And if that brings peace, so be it. But those, I think, would be the most helpful tips for you. I'd also make sure that if you're feeling symptoms of depression down, that just seems you just can't get out of it. It's not just a passing element. Let your physician, your provider know. We wanted to be able to help you. There's plenty of hotlines. There's plenty of uh, outlets out there to help. And I think that's the most important thing I would tell any one of you out there, if you're having or struggling with problems like that, to let us know, because we can do something about it even now. Our thanks to neurologist Dr. Joseph Servin for his thoughts. We'd also like to remind you our Mayo Clinic Q&A podcasts offer extended conversations about stress relief, among other discussions on COVID-19. You can access our Q&A series wherever you download your favorite podcasts. 
You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice. And you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know. 